Hey everyone in Serial Killer Country, my name is Brittany Ransom. And my name is Brian Joyner. And this is When Killers Get Caught, a podcast devoted to deep dives into true crime. If you're new here, When Killers Get Caught is a three-part podcast where we discuss true crime stories that resonated with us. Then I will lead you down the path of a well-known or lesser-known killer and discuss their childhood lives, methodology, and of course, how they got caught. And then Brian will finish off our episode with a paranormal palate cleanser. Before we start, I just want to let everybody know that their Thick Dits Merc Drop ends on January 31st, 2022, which means that this will be the last time that you can get yourself a Booty Man hoodie or t-shirt. Unfortunately, we're going to move on to other more interesting cryptids and make some more shirts in the future, so this will be the last chance for you to get this. Hey, Mothman is interesting, Okay. Listen, I like I said it before we did this, I didn't realize that the Mothman had such an intense level of following and fans because so many people like it and I love that. Yeah, but but if wait. you are interested in getting your own Mothman shirt or just any when killers get caught merch like this beanie I have on right now, then you can go to www.whenkillersgetcaught.shop. Other stuff like the beanie and the mug will be available after the Thick Dids launch ends, but the Thick Dids shirts leave on January 31st. And this week in true crime, I would like to talk about uh, uh, some of, uh, well, pretty much my best friend's, like, least favorite person these days, Josh Duggar. And <laughs> Josh Duggar spent the holidays in jail, and he's decided apparently that he's had enough. So this week, his attorneys uh, began asking for a mistrial, and they're asking if that doesn't work for a retrial. Now, if you are not up on Josh Duggar, I could do an entire podcast about this man and his family. But to be brief, I'm going to mention uh, he's part of a he's a member of a fundamentalist Christian group called the Independent Fundamental Baptists. It's not, a, I wouldn't call it organized like a cult, but it's very intense. And they have some of the strictest Christian beliefs. His family rose to popularity when TLC did a show about how big their family was. I believe it was called 19 and counting. I think mm. his mom has had a total of 22 pregnancies. This church kind of raises young women to be absolutely compliant to their spouses, marries them off fairly young. Uh, his family appears to mimic a lot of the quiverful doctrine but uh, Jim Bob Duggar, his dad, and Michelle Duggar deny this vehemently because Quiverful has a lot of negative implications, specifically that it's really patriarchal and hardcore conservative. But regardless, uh, Josh has been a menace to his family for easily the last 15, 20 years. He started sexually assaulting his sisters when they were still filming the show. Um, at the time, no one other than the girls, like, they didn't know who to talk to because in their religion, they're taught that, like, if men do something bad, it's your fault. So that didn't happen. The only thing his family did was punish him by making him cut his hair and do hard labor. And you can go back if you watch the show and see that happening. Uh, in December of 2021, he was charged with child pornography, federal charges, facing 20 years in federal prison. He's actually going to be sentenced in April and like I said, this week, his lawyers requested a retrial, retrial saying that another employee must have looked at the child porn on his computer at work. Why? Why would someone use 
Why? That's that. It's such a weird, like... That's a, and that's it's a, wild yeah. because when the FBI raided his job, it was a used car dealership. <laughs> he walked, as they walked in, he was just like, oh, is someone looking at child porn here? Really? Really? He says the proof that he wasn't looking at it is that there were none on any of his personal devices or home computers and that one of his coworkers is a registered sex offender. And I'm like, buddy, so are you. Yeah. <laughs> you're part of the club, buddy. <laughs> if he's guilty because he's a sex offender, you're guilty too, buddy. Um, I think it's where this didn't come up during discovery at his trial. Apparently the prosecution uh, had a conversation about passwords with the other employee and they looked into who accessed the computer at what time and it wasn't included because it seems like an inconsequential amount like data this conversation but they're using this as grounds for an acquittal or a new trial entirely it is absolutely ridiculous and yet again a, another sign that when people have money they just screw with the system but I guess we'll see what happens. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Yeah. What about <laughs> you in true crime? Huh. Well, this week, I, like, I'm stuck in Pennsylvania, okay? <laughs> Another Pennsylvania? Yeah. It's, it's not a funny one. Wait, was okay. last week's a funny one? I don't think it was funny. No, last week was, no, last week was terrible. Anyway. So, okay. <clears throat> this week... This is coming from Philadelphia. Okay. Uh, so, a Jamaican man, his name is Peter Spencer. He's 25? Okay. Uh, so, he lived in Pittsburgh at this time. Um, and this happened a couple days ago. So, he, you know, he got an invitation from a former co-worker to go, I guess, camping in a cabin with him. Mm-hmm. some Somewhere... And where's it? Rockland Township. Okay. Do you know where that's at? Because I do not. Not off the top of my head. All right. It's like north northeast of I guess Philly. Um. Anyway. Okay. Um. And this happened on December eleventh. Uh. So. So he's at this cabin. He's there with his coworker, his ex coworker, and I guess two other men that were there. So. Let me preface this as uh, by saying the ex worker and the other two guys were white men, and and Peter is black, obviously. Um, so, police, state police were called, and I think it was like two two thirty in the morning on December twelfth, and they found Peter's body. He's dead. On the front oh. lawn, and he had multiple gunshot wounds to him. Yeah, um, I think it said nine the last time I looked. Um, uh, okay. So the reason why, like, I'm, I'm talking about this is because he, like, his family says that obviously this is like a modern day lynching. Um. But the funny thing is, is that none of these men that, like, were with Peter at this time were, are charged with anything yet. They're not, they, they weren't being questioned or nothing like that. Um, Somebody had to do something. 
Yeah, I know, right? It's not. It's... Do they have any statement? Like, what do they say happened? <laughs> okay, let me <laughs> let me read this. Uh, let me actually, let me find this real quick and let me read it. Okay. So, like I said, they were called two thirty in the morning, uh, December twelfth. Um, so, a suspect, twenty five years old, and three other people at the home were detained and questioned. So, they were questioned. Uh, police said in a news release that, all, but right, police said this, but um, all four were, le- were released after consultation. Um, and I guess police said they found multiple firearms, ballistic evidence, and controlled substances at the home. But after six weeks, no one has been charged with a crime. Those working with Peter's uh, family are asking other law enforcement agencies to get involved. So, like, nobody's been charged with anything yet. And this is, what, six weeks? So about, like, a month. Jesus. This is that stuff that, this is the reason why Gabby Petito's dude, Brian Laundry was able to just dip. Yeah, it says, um, they found out that he's been, he has, he had been shot nine times. Nine times. Um, and yeah, his family is just like. Waiting. Yeah. For something. And I think a quote from somebody in his family and says, uh, how can this happen in America? Um, black lives are supposed to matter. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's the issue. Yeah. It feels and like they don't. Absolutely. Like his family has a GoFundMe page now up for him. Um, like, I guess his one of his siblings says uh, he was slaughtered and killed in what I consider an act of modern day lynching, and I mean, it's. I don't know if I would call it lynching, but it definitely sounds like murder. It's definitely murder. Um, I mean, there have been a couple of cases in the last couple of months where people have been found like hanging from trees, and they're just like, "What? That was what? That was a suicide." <laughs> from trees, no people. <laughs> Uh, you know just randomly yeah just randomly hanging from trees yeah um yeah that sucks yeah that reminds me of that woman oh what was her name oh i I keep forgetting but i forget it was down in georgia picture of her in that house with all of those other white women yes they find her outside Mm-hmm. Dead the next morning. Mm-hmm. I, I always forget exactly for- what this reminds me of. I always forget her name, but like it happened in Georgia, and yeah, it's 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 just like that. It's it's wild. Listen, I'm like, not saying that white people are dangerous, but what I'm saying is when you are like one black person and there's only other like white people. That is when I don't feel as safe. Yeah. yeah and like it's it. because people look out for their own. And people will straight up be like, listen, I, I mean, we saw this with the the, the McElroy uh, case. Mm-hmm. That town knows who killed that man. They decided when it happened, we're not going to say anything. Nope. And so it probably, like, it sounds like what's happening here is that all of the men are like, we don't know what happened. And so since none of them are giving any information, the police are like, well, 
everybody touched all the guns. It was a hunting trip. We have everybody's prints on everything. And so unless somebody, what's the word? Um, confesses. confesses. There's nothing we can do. Yeah. That happened with another case I covered not that long ago on TikTok where this girl died at a house party. And I guess some of the people at the party freaked out and they like dismembered her and threw her body in a rake. Um, and they got in trouble for like, what's the word? Like um, abusing a corpse. Yeah. You know what um, I mean, like yeah, not rightfully disposing of remains, but nobody got in trouble for her murder because they couldn't figure out which person did it. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's yeah. just so crazy. And like, I kinda, like I said, game in the system. Not I kinda wanna look and see if that like the, the case in Georgia, that the woman at that out that other house part, that's that sleepover, that adult sleepover, if that case has ever been like Nothing ever over. happened. I didn't think so. But yeah, well, um, that's what a uh, sad start to the day. I well, we're going to keep going sadder, aren't we? Yep, let's get ready for the worst because <laughs> we're picking up on oh, the God. rest of Ted Bundy's story. And so, last week we talked about everything from the beginning of his life up to his extradition to Utah in April of 1977. I mentioned last week that he was planning an escape, mm-hmm. and he was able to make this escape possible partially because of Carol Ann Boone. <sighs> Now, I said we would talk about Ted's future wife. And now's a pretty good time. So she worked with him in Olympia at the Department of Emergency Services. He didn't stay there that long, remember? Only a couple months. Uh, Things were very platonic when they worked there because he was still dating Liz. But after he left Olympia, they kept in touch, writing letters back and forth. Sort of created this long-distance relationship. When they met, Ted was already a murderer, but she didn't know that. He was able to very much keep his private life and his alternate life very separate. In fact, while the women who dated him felt close to him, he kept himself emotionally distant from them. Like a lot of sociopaths, he was good at mimicking the behaviors needed to not make people too suspicious about you. Mm -hmm. Um, Boone said that she felt Bundy was shy and very dignified and restrained at work. Um, That shyness was him being like, can't let too much out. Uh, and that restraint wasn't him being a nice guy. It was a manufactured mask necessary for him to be around regular people and to show that he wasn't a complete and total psychopath. Mm-hmm. The two kept up their long distance relationship. Even when Ted went to prison, she visited him in Utah for seven days in 1975. Uh, by the time he was extradited to Colorado, she was deeply invested in him So when he would ask her for money or drugs or things, she would essentially smuggle them into him with no questions asked. And that's when Ted began to plan to be his own attorney because he realized if he was his own attorney, he wasn't going to be handcuffed in or around the courtroom as it would bias the jury against him. They also gave him access to the court's law library to research his defense. I wish wish they did. (laughs) You imagine imagine just a little... A lawyer, um, just walked, yes, just walking around with chains. <laughs> like, what the hell? Oh, god, 
Well, so June 7th, 1977, he gets his chance. The morning opening statements come. He goes, uh, the court has a short recess, and he's allowed to go to the law library, research his defense on the second floor of the Pitkin County Courthouse. Tad later told writers that he had thought about the escape, but he wasn't sure if he had the guts to do what he had planned. There was only one guard posted at the room, and when that guard left, that was Ted's chance. His, his actual words were, the sky was blue, and I said, I'm ready to go. And I walked out to the window and jumped out. Honest to God, I just got sick and tired of being locked up. It was about 10 minutes before anyone noticed he was gone, and he began hitchhiking toward Aspen Mountain. Police put up roadblocks to stop him, but since he was walking and wearing a different set of clothes, which he had underneath, that was stuff that Carol had smuggled into him. Hmm. He had thrown his other clothes that he was wearing that day out, and he just walked out of Aspen. He spent the next six days breaking into people's cabins, trailers, stealing clothing and food, but he actually returned to Aspen when he thought it was safe and tried to steal a car. Why would you go he back? was uh, he need a car. And I mean Colorado's kind of wildernessy. Mm, okay. So he's sleep deprived, haggard, and as he's driving away, he starts crossing the median line. And the police stop him thinking he's under the influence. He's arrested again. This time they take him to Garfield County Jail in Gladwin Springs, Colorado. Now, Ted wouldn't be defeated, though. He was going to escape. Uh, his former attorney visited him in the fall at Glenwood, and that was the name of the prison. And the attorney was just like, he seems really thin. Like, he had dropped, like, 25 pounds, which was a lot for a guy who wasn't that big to begin with. Mm-hmm. No, the guards didn't think much of it because they thought he was trying to have like a hunger strike and get like special privileges. So they were just ignoring the fact that he wasn't eating. What actually happened is that he noticed there was a gap in the ceiling of his cell, just a little bit smaller than he was. So <laughs> he started trying to lose weight. And then at night he would chip away at it and try and make it a little bigger. Oh my God. Uh, He was able to do more work around Thanksgiving and Christmas because the prison was short-staffed around the holidays. (laughs) On December 31st, he chips away enough that the now very slim Ted can slip through. Using his pillows and law books, he makes it look like he's still in the bed. He crawls into the crawl space between the floors. And like, just like a movie, crawled through ducks. He dropped down into a guard apartment, which was empty because most of the people weren't there. Mm -hmm. He changed into the regular clothes that he stole from the guard and then walked out of the prison. Oh, my God. Now, when it was noticed that he was missing, the FBI immediately put him on the top most wanted list. But, like, at this point, he was already gone. So he used the money that Carol Boone had stashed away from him to catch a flight to Chicago, then a train to Michigan... Then he drove a stolen car to Atlanta and then took a bus to Tallahassee, Florida. And his attempt was to lay low. He managed to convince a manager at the Oak Apartments to rent him a room. This apartment complex was very close to Florida State University. And he was absolutely prospecting. 
On January 12, 1978, he stole a set of van keys from the FSU Media Center, and then the next day he stole tags from a different van. January 15th marks one of the most horrific of his crimes. Um, this is the attack on the Chi Omega Sorority House on FSU campus. This is my opinion, obviously, as I'm only telling the story, but mm-hmm. he was in the middle of a complete de-evolution. Um, this is the scary moment for police who are trying to find a killer like this because it's a sign that they've lost control. There was not nearly as much of the prior calculation or planning for this crime. There was no ruse. He just needed to kill, and he had to do it now. This was much more disorganized. So what I'm going to do is explain a timeline and the people who were there. So Margaret Bowman, she's 21 years old. Uh, She's from St. Petersburg, Florida. She went on a blind date at about 9.30 p.m., and she came home by midnight, went to bed around 2.15. Lisa Levy, or Levy, also from St. Petersburg, worked at a part-time job, and after she got done with work, she went to go out to a club. There was a club that almost was right next to the sorority house called Sherrod's, and she ended up going with her sorority sister, Melanie Nelson. Uh, They went at about 10 p.m. Lisa left about a half hour later because she was just tired. Uh, also, there was Leslie Waddle, like I said, Melanie Nelson, and Mary, Mary Ann Piccano, and Connie Hastings. They were also sorority sisters, too. Mary Ann later told a story about a brown-haired man who stared at her in the club. She said he kept coming over to the table, bringing her drinks, and asking her to dance. She was definitely put off by him, but she finally agreed and even whispered to Connie, I think I'm about to go dance with an ex-con. Mm-hmm. After they danced, he left. She was a bit relieved. The rest of the group left at 10 a.m. and went home. When they got home, they noted that the lock on the back door seemed to be malfunctioning and that it had been malfunctioning for the last few nights. Hmm. Their house mother, who they called Mom Crenshaw, went to bed around 11 p.m. She was just on site to be there if somebody needed her. Karen Chandler, who was also a sister went to see her parents and have dinner. She returned, she returned back to the Chi Omega house just before midnight. Karen lived with Kathy Kleiner, who had gone to a wedding with her fiancé. Both of them were in bed before midnight. Now, Nita Neary and Nancy Dowdy lived on the house, and they were out on dates. There was another girl named Tara Murphy who worked at Shiraz, and she got off work, came home after two. Melanie Nelson remembers looking at her alarm clock after talking to Terry, and turning out her lights at 2.45. This is incredibly important because everything that happens next happens in the next 15 minutes. Okay. At 3 a.m., Nita came back to the house. Her boyfriend dropped her off. They had gone to a party at a frat house. The back door was wide open. She said she heard a loud thump from upstairs. She went into the foyer, and all of the lights in the house were on. She heard someone running, and she saw a man. He was tall, thin, wearing a dark jacket and a navy blue knit hat that was pulled down to try and cover his face. He was crouched over with his hand on the doorknob and just carrying a big piece of wood. And then, like, she looked around, and then he was gone. She ran and told her roommate, Nancy, and they saw Karen Chandler stumble out of her room, like, holding her head, just covered in blood. 
piecing the scene together was absolute like craziness. They know that Ted broke into the back through the door, back mm-hmm. door. Now there's a question that he might have been the one to actually break the lock the night before. Uh, he went to Margaret Bowman's rooms <laughs> first. He began by beating her with a piece of oak wood and strangling her to death. Since he had blitz attacked her, there was no defensive wounds. She hadn't made a sound, so he moved on to Lisa Levy's, Levy's room, bludgeoned her to death. This would be probably one of the first signs of overkill here. He had, while he was assaulting her, like sexually assaulting her, mm. he was biting her. And they said that one of her nipples was almost off, like it was hanging on by a thread. And he left a very prominent bite mark on her butt. Then he left that room, closed the door, walked into the room that Kathy Kleiner and Karen Chandler shared. Kathy doesn't, like, so Karen barely remembers the attack. Kathy uh, only remembers, like, being awake for a second, but that he was in the middle of, like, between their twin beds, and he was just standing and hitting one of them and then turning and hitting the next person. And just back and forth, back and forth. This this point, it wasn't even, like, the sexual thing. He just was beating them. Right. Kathy and Cheryl both miraculously... Um, sorry, I said Cheryl. Kathy and Karen both miraculously survived this attack. And Kathy believes it's because of the lights on the car from her friend's boyfriend when he drove up. And side note, I just learned this past week that after 40 years, Kathy's going to do a memoir. Uh, she refused to for so many years because of the kind of the legendary status. It's not that she was angry about it, but just that she only wants people to talk about Ted Bundy if they're going to be honest about the victims. Right. Uh, but she's had one hell of a life. When she was a kid, she had uh, she was sick at seven. She nearly died multiple times as a child. She nearly died during this encounter. And then a year after this, she got held at gunpoint at her job as a bank teller, and she made it through that too. So I figure if people are going to bother Kathy Kleiner about this, she might as well make some money off of her story. Right. You know, rough life. So like I said, I mentioned the timeline because there's, there is a question here. Some people wonder if after he kind of bugged uh, Melanie to dance, if he went directly to their house or if he waited until everyone stopped moving around. They're not entirely sure. Either way, uh, about Nancy Dowdy calls 911, but she was so hysterical that the operator didn't hear what was re- what she was really saying. Mm. Um, and so the operator told the police that there were two drunk college girls uh, fighting <coughs> over a boyfriend. Really? Two girls fighting, yes. Not two girls dying. Yeah, not two girls um, getting hit. Yeah. Officer Oscar Brandon arrived at 3.23 a.m. He was the closest officer. A few minutes later, he was joined by Florida State University police and paramedics. As the police are there, like I said, at that point, Kathy has no idea. Later on, she remembered certain details. She's got broken jaw, broken teeth, fractures in her head. She's cut all over her head and body. Both women had to have their airways open on the way to the hospital uh, because they were going to choke to death on their own blood. Mm -hmm. 
the police didn't even find the two dead girls until they started to take stock of where everyone was in the building. And they were just like, one of the um, people didn't even think that Lisa was home yet. So they now uncover two dead girls. They try and save, they try their best to save them, but I mean, no pulse. It's what you do when you're EMS. Like you try, but yeah. Yeah. And he succeeded in murdering two women. He probably would have tried to murder every woman in the house if someone didn't come home, which means he killed two people beat another two to death in 15 minutes with an earshot of roughly 13 potential witnesses. He had taken the piece of wood with his DNA on it. That that was from a pile of wood for the fireplace at the back of the house. This was overkill. This was de-evolution. This was a sign that things were going to get worse. So officers start canvassing the neighborhood in hopes that they catch him. Now, of course, some people believe that the 911 operator had heard what Nancy really said, which is that two girls are hurt. Maybe the police would have arrived faster and they could have put up a better like roadblock. But they gave it a good shot. They dusted everything for prints. They sent out surveillance vans to check the people who were just walking down the street. Of course, the police didn't know was that he left their house, walked eight blocks down the road to kill another girl. <clears throat> So another group of college kids had gone out for a night of drinking and they had gotten home uh, just after three. Those were apartment mates, Debbie Cicerelli, or is it? Yeah, and Nancy Young. They, it was like a duplex that, you know, they cut the place in half and one person's on, you know, A and the other person's B. Mm -hmm. So Debbie and Nancy lived in apartment A and their next door neighbor was Cheryl Thomas and she lived in apartment B. They shared a central wall, and all three of them had gone to a different nightclub called Big Daddy's. Cheryl had to take her date home because he didn't have a car, and so she left early, dropped him off, went back to her house, got there a little after two, she turned on the TV. When the other girls got home closer to, like, three o'clock, they, like, kind of made a joke that her TV was too loud. Everybody laughed, and then they all kind of went to bed. So Debbie wakes up at about 4 a.m., and she hears just loud banging. She said it sounded like someone was using a hammer under the house. Since her mattress was on the floor, she could feel the vibrations. She's super creeped out. She goes and wakes up Nancy. This goes on for about 10 minutes, and they just stand in their apartment, terrified, until they hear Cheryl. She's, like, whimpering. And Debbie calls her boyfriend and is like, what do we do? And her boyfriend's like, it's probably nothing. But Debbie's like, no, something's wrong. So... Those three, who were good buddies, had set up kind of a security system, which was, we're going to call if we think something's wrong, and you got to pick up no matter what. And so they call Cheryl's phone, and it just rang and rang and rang and rang, and nobody answered. And that's when they called 911. Debbie called the 911 operator at 437. While she's on the phone with the operator, they hear a loud crash from Cheryl's apartment, and then the police pull up. They point to Cheryl's door, and the police bang on the door while someone else goes to the back. Both doors couldn't be open, so one officer was like, there's, an, oh, like, there's a window here, and it's open. So he climbs in, and that's when uh, Debbie remembers that there was a key above the front door. They use that key. 
There's blood everywhere. It's all over the room. Cheryl's still alive, but she's turning purple from all the bruises. Um, he managed to pull off her shirt, but not her underwear. The same paramedics who had just dropped Kathy Kleiner and Karen Chandler at the emergency room arrived to an almost identical scene with a woman who's been just brutally beaten. They very quickly realized probably the same one that the police officer went through is the same one that the assailant went through. Because mm-hmm. Cheryl's front and back doors are both deadbolted. So Kathy, Karen, and Cheryl survived that attack, though... Cheryl was there to study dance, and uh, she walked with a limp after the attack. Karen had a concussion, a broken jaw, fractures in the face. Kathy was similar. Cheryl had gotten it actually worse. She had five skull fractures, permanent hearing loss in her left ear. Her jaw was broken, shoulder dislocated. Her eighth cranial nerve was so damaged that her equilibrium is permanently off forever. The autopsy on Lisa Levy was pretty bad the pathologist though believes that she was unconscious from the blows to her head so she didn't experience you know him mm-hmm. nearly severing a nipple or and they discovered that he used a hairspray bottle to physically assault her and he did rupture certain internal organs um, on top of her being unconscious from the hits to the head he did also strangle her as well Margaret Bowman's postmortem was just as bad. Her skull fractures were so severe that broken pieces of her skull had been driven into her brain. Um, the death certificate actually said that the head trauma was complicated, which is a term they use to mean that because the skull trauma was so intense, they couldn't tell where one fracture started and another one ended. She had deep fractures above her right eye all the way to her right ear. She had been strangled with a pair of pantyhose where he had cut the leg off uh, to the point where he had cut the flesh in her neck. The pathologist believed that Margaret was dead long before she was strangled, but that he was just... Overkill the word. Well, I think he was just... At this point, this is a ritual. Um. He did strangle so many of the other girls. He was still trying to hold on to his ritual a little bit. Mm Mm-hmm. But it was falling apart. Um, Margaret was not sexually assaulted post-mortem. I'm going to say, from the beginning, though, Florida PD took this very seriously. They kept a very strict chain of evidence so that nothing was lost. It was always known who had what items as they were being taken to the crime lab. Every single thing was tested, tracked, examined, and then put back in lockup. The pathologist even cut the section of Lisa uh, Levy's skin that had been bitten, and they saved it. And just there was, in case there was a chance that they could do some kind of DNA evidence, they found a semen stain on Cheryl Thomas's bottom sheet that they did extensive testing on too. And like, all this evidence was great, but they didn't have a suspect to compare it to. And very few police in Florida even knew that Ted Bundy was missing from Colorado yet. In fact, uh, Ann Rule talks about how she ended up seeing that news story because, you know, she's a crime reporter, so she's reading about this horrible case. And her brain was just like, I wonder if Ted's in Florida. Right, yeah. But uh, the men on FSU campus uh, decided to start walking all women classmates home from school. 
They offered to sleep on the first floor of all of the dorms to make sure that nobody could break in. Ted is emboldened by the fact that he got away with this. He starts stealing a lot more, using those stolen credit cards to go and eat expensive meals all over Tallahassee. He's just like, these cops are stupid. They're never going to get me. The only thing he was having an issue with was that while restaurants just accepted these credit cards and didn't check his ID, he was unsure of how to get cash to pay his rent to his landlord. 325, by the way. For Wait, for rent? Yep, $325. The fuck? <laughs> <laughs> like, isn't that, like, painful how small it was? Ugh. I mean, don't no. be honest. That was probably a lot in the late 70s. I remember, God, I mean, I had a one-bedroom that was, like, I don't know, four or five hundred. I think it was, like, 550 for a one-bedroom. Like, oh, bless like, you. That's incredible. When that I first little crappy that. studio I was in yeah. that we used to record in. I was paying like six fifty. Yeah, it's ridiculous. I love how prices just raise like that. But anyway, <laughs> I'm annoyed. Listen, we can talk forever about how terrible it is to live everywhere. To, to live, to uh, just live. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I saw a tweet that was like, "Why does it cost to live? I'm not even enjoying myself. I want a <laughs> refund." Like, I didn't even ask for any of this. Thank you. I didn't ask to be here. Anyway. So it appeared that one of the people that Ted robbed was the neighbor behind Cheryl Thompson. His name was Randy Reagan. And on January 13th, two days before the attack, he did notice the tags on his VW camper were stolen. Uh, He didn't report them missing. He just thought that maybe a screw had come off. They fell off while he was driving, so he ordered new tags. Now, like I said, he 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 sort of lies low. February 5th is the next sighting. A man by the name of Freddie McGee reports a white Dodge van owned by Florida State Audiovisual Department is stolen off of Florida State's campus. And on Wednesday, February 8th, 1978, a young girl by the name of Leslie Ann Parmenter leaves her school, Jeb Stewart Junior High School in Jacksonville, just before 2 p.m. And just uh, for people who don't know Florida, this is all North Florida. So Jacksonville to Tallahassee by drive is about two and a half hours, 164 miles. So he goes from Tallahassee where he murders two women assaults three more, drives two and a half hours east to Jacksonville. Now, Leslie was 14, and she was the daughter of the Jacksonville Police Department Chief of Detectives. She crossed the street uh, uh, to the spot where her brother, uh, Danny, always picked her up after school. It was right in front of a Kmart. A white van pulls up in front of her, and... Leslie's already suspicious. She said this dude was disheveled. He looked like he needed a shave. He was wearing dark frame glasses, had a dark navy jacket, and he walked over to her, but he tried to cut her off from her, like, like an escape path. 
He had a plastic badge that said Richard Burton Fire Department on it. And he was like, I'm from the fire department. My name is Richard Burton. Do you go to school over there? Someone told me you did. Are you going to the Kmart? And Leslie kind of realized a couple things right away. This man is not a fireman. And he is far too unkempt to be anybody my dad works with. Right. (laughs) She tried to sidestep him, but he kept blocking her path and asking her more questions. And she's like, why does he want to know who I am? So at that moment, her brother Danny drives up and is just not okay with this situation. (laughs) Danny's 21 (laughs) and he's already annoyed. Like, why is this old dude bothering my little sister? He pulls up real close to the white man and starts asking Richard questions. Leslie uses this moment to hop in her brother's truck. The man gets back in his van. And finally, like, Danny doesn't let up. He's like, why are you keep, why were you talking to her? He's like, I thought she was someone else. I was just asking her who she was. Danny doesn't, like, mm, he doesn't really agree. He doesn't like that answer. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So as the white van drives away, he follows them. He gets the, the, the van gets lost in traffic, but they do write down the license plate, which was 13D11300. And that doesn't seem relevant, but uh, unlike where you and I live, their plates tell a different story. It tells police a few things when a, someone's driving. So the 13 means that the car was licensed in Leon County. The D means it is for a small vehicle. That van is not a small vehicle. It would be a different license class. Right. But Bundy (laughs) wouldn't have known that because he wasn't from Florida. So Danny tells his dad that this big-ass van has a license plate for a small vehicle. That's an instant red flag that it's probably stolen. And the thing is, if Leslie had been any other kid and not a policeman's daughter, this probably would have been forgotten as just a weirdo who was messing, you know, talking to a little girl. But you don't really mess with a cop's kid. And expect he's not going to look you up. So James Lester Parmenter decided he was going to look into this. He had a lot of work on February 9th, but he ended up making the call that afternoon. Now, that same day, Kimberly Diane Leach was in Lake City, Florida, which is about halfway. Not even halfway. It's a little closer to Jacksonville, but it's in between Tallahassee and Jacksonville. She's 12 years old. She's having a pretty awesome day, actually. She had been elected the runner-up as the Valentine Queen at Lake City Junior High School. Uh, She realized after first period, she left her purse in her homeroom. Uh, One of the teachers like, go back with your friend, because they had to go outside to get to, I guess, the other building. Mm -hmm. They ran back to get it in the rain. Uh, Then they went to leave, and Priscilla, uh, her friend, realized that she had to go back in the room. So it was like within seconds this happened. Priscilla goes back in the room, grabs something. When she gets outside, she sees a man talking to her friend. By the time she gets to the street, the man, the van, and Kimberly are gone. Now, a lieutenant and firefighter named Clarence Anderson was driving by the school as this is happening. And he actually sees a white van blocking traffic. And he sees a crying girl being led by a man in his early 30s. Clarence assumes this is an angry father taking his daughter home. Mm -hmm. Not him witnessing Kimberly getting kidnapped. kidnapped. Another woman by the name of Jackie Moore reports that she saw the same dirty white van on Highway 90. 
She said the guy was driving recklessly and he cut across, like he cut in front of her. He almost hit her. And she remembers him distinctively screaming at someone in the passenger seat. Now, Kim's parents, Thomas and Frida Leach, didn't know she was missing until the school attendance officer calls in the afternoon and is like, where's Kim? And the mom's like, uh, she's at school where I dropped her off. And they said, well, she hasn't been seen since first period. Her parents were like, we'll talk to her when she gets home. Kim didn't come home for dinner. I mean, she didn't come home from school. So the school was like, maybe she ran away. And her parents were like, no, she didn't run away. So they searched the property, find nothing. She doesn't come home for dinner. They call all of Kim's friends. Priscilla tells them she saw Kim talking to a man on the street and then she didn't see anything else. They call the police and Chief Paul Philput is like, listen, even the best kids run away sometimes. I'm sure she'll come home. But he still sent out a couple patrolmen to try and make the family feel better. Now, back over in Jacksonville, Detective Parmenter doesn't know that Kim is missing. But he does want to find the man who approached his daughter, so he calls the Young County Sheriff's Office and explains the situation. You know. And uh, the Leon County is like, well, that, that guy's, his car is Randy Reagan's car. And they go to talk to Randy and he's just like, oh, my tags were gone and I got new ones. So of course now they know that this is stolen tags. Uh, the detective, his name was Steve Bodeford, connected that to the stolen car on the FSU campus. And he really felt like it had to be related to the missing girl in Lake City. This information got back to Parmenter and he realized that both of his kids had seen this guy very clearly. <laughs> so he had them go to the police uh, and get hypnotized to retell their story, which apparently worked too well <clears throat> because Leslie relived it. And for some reason, when she was asked while like in her trance to discuss his face she just freaked out like complete like hyperventilation hysterical they had to stop it um they do go to the police sketch artist individually his name was donald donald bryan and both of them give a clear description of what this man looks like um in fact when bundy would be later caught they compared it and they went all you had to do was just add a pair of like dingy crappy glasses to bundy's real face and it was identical <clears throat> damn <clears throat> Jacksonville police try, uh, well, like ja Lake City actually tries their best. Um, they look for Kimberly for eight weeks. The search covers four counties, 2,000 square miles. Eventually, they do find her mummified remains in a shed near the Swanee River State Park, about 45 miles west of Lake City. She had been assaulted, beaten, and strangled making her the second 12-year-old that Ted Bundy raped and killed. Mm. And it kind of makes it hard to say he only did it before because he was trying to throw the police off his scent. In my opinion, one time makes you a pedophile, but two times is not a coincidence. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's a pattern. Right. It's, it's not a coincidence anymore. Even if he lied to himself about it, Ted Bundy was a pedophile. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so that's February 9th that... They, they make the connection and they look up Randy. February 10th, Ted still thinks he is in the clear. He's not fully realizing the walls are closing in on him, 
he manages to sweet talk his landlord into giving him just a couple more days to pay the rent. He has no intention of paying. His intention is to leave Tallahassee as soon as, because he did know the Tallahassee PD were looking for him and he was aware of the Lake County uh, police search. So next day, February 11th, just after 1 a.m., Deputy Keith Dawes is doing surveillance because the college campus was still like freaked out. They were still having people doing shifts, like four hour shifts, just driving around Mm -hmm. looking. So February 11th, Deputy Keith Dawes is doing his midnight to 4 a.m. shift. He sees a white guy fiddling with the car door of a Toyota. This man is very close to the Chai Omega house. He's bending over the door of the Toyota, and he just rides up on him, and he's just like, hey, what are you doing out here? It's kind of late. And he goes, I came to get my book. And Keith is like, you don't have a book in your hand, bud. He's like, I might be stupid, but like, <laughs> <laughs> I, like I might be dumb, but I'm not that dumb. <laughs> He's like, Where, where's your books that you came to get? Um, he also, Keith <clears throat> also specifically says is that Ted looks exhausted. Um, but there are books in the car. So he's like, they were right here. See? And so he has an answer for everything where he's living, why he parked on this street. However, the deputy uses his flashlight and sees a tag on the inside of the car. A tag that is 13D11300, which he didn't really recognize. So he went back to his car to call it in. As soon as he turns around to make that call, running. Of just course Ted takes off in, like, in between houses. He is gone. Of course, when he calls it in, he's told that that uh, tag belonged to a man named Randy, who's about eight blocks away. So he just heads over to Randy's house, and it's just like, you are not the guy I just saw. Uh, In fact, they ended up showing uh, Keith a picture lineup. Deputy picks up Ted right away. Mm -hmm. And he was just like, I I was an arm's length away from him. He's like, I could have hit him with a baseball bat. That's how close he was. Oh, damn. Essentially, what Ted was doing was he was breaking into this Toyota and trying to transfer his stuff from the white van into that because they found the white van. He abandoned it. Mm -hmm. So now the police have both cars full of papers and stuff from him. February 12th, Ted is in a panic. He grabs everything he wanted from his apartment, wipes the room down and runs. This same day, of course they find the abandoned white van fingerprint the absolute crap out of it, but they are very aware that the person wiped down, always wiped down the handles and in other spots. One thing they were able to tell though, was that something had been dragged in the dust of the van and they also found blood inside. Mm. That same afternoon on the same campus, he steals an orange VW bug, puts a different stolen tag on the car, starts driving West. There are no sightings between February 13th until February 15th at 1.30 a.m. Patrolman David Lee was working the third shift, 8 p.m. to 4 a.m. on a beat he was very familiar with. He knew all the cars that were normally there that left the restaurants that closed late, things like that, the diners and stuff. Mm -hmm. And he sees the orange VW bug driving around and he thinks it just looks a little suspicious. Why does it keep driving around? 
is is this somebody trying to case a building or a restaurant and break in? Right, right, yeah. So while he's following the the orange V dub, he calls in the plates to check. Tags come back stolen. As soon as he turns on the police lights, Ted takes off. Mm. This goes on for about a mile at over sixty miles per hour. Finally, though, an exhausted and very haggard Ted pulls over. Lee approaches him with his weapon drawn. And in the past, this had happened to him. And he managed to use his privilege to talk white men out of arresting. <laughs> but he just didn't have that intimate today. So when Lee orders Ted to lay on the ground, Ted tackles the officer who discharges his weapon to try and scare him. It works. Ted just takes off running. At first, Lee thought he had a gun because he had managed to only get uh, one of the, ha- the handcuffs on only one of Ted's hands. Mm-hmm. Ted hits the ground thinking he might have been shot. And when Lee approaches to check on him, he goes to fight him again. Uh, Lee said that the fight seemed like it lasted forever. And while it's happening, he just hears help, 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 and realizes that Ted is the one screaming help. Oh my God. And to the point where people actually came out of their houses and were like, what are you doing to him? Assuming that the cop is brutalizing Ted Bundy. Oh my Bundy. God. No, no, you got it all wrong. This guy is weird. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lee cuffs him, puts him in the back of his squad car, completely unaware that he just arrested and detained number one on the FBI most wanted. Mm. Ted listens to his Miranda rights, and the only thing he says on the way to the station is, I wish he had just killed me. Then when they get close, he asks, if I run from you at the jail, then will you kill me? Which totally has Lee, like, confused. He's like, this guy, like, why, one, why did he fight me so much over a stolen car? Mm-hmm. And he's just like, why all of a sudden is he, like, suicidal? You know, of course, because he doesn't know what's really happening here. Right. They try to book him, but he won't give his name. So they put him in a cell. And they're like, go to sleep. We'll deal with this later. About 3 a.m., one of the police detectives pops in and is just like, what's your name? And they wake him up and put him in interrogation. He's like, my name is Kenneth Raymond Misner. The problem with that was that they had already searched the Orange VW over the next, like, two hours. Mm-hmm. And they found three different IDs, 21 stolen credit cards, a stolen TV, stolen tags, and a stolen bicycle. So they know he's not Kenneth Raymond Mil- Misner. Kenneth is 200 miles away in Tallahassee being woken up <laughs> by <laughs> cops who are like, are you Ken? And he's like, yeah, someone stole my car and all my crap. <laughs> oh, damn. The interrogation only stops at 6.30 a.m. because Ted asks for a doctor. Now, Tallahassee detective Don Patchen and Leon County detective Steve Bodiford are like, we're driving to Pensacola to talk to this man. Ted refuses to speak to them on the 15th, but he says, if you come back tomorrow, I'll talk to you. Oh, my God. His initial paperwork is just filed as unidentified. The next morning, he admits to Bodiford and Patchen that he committed all this theft. The interview ends with Bodiford asking for his name again. And he says, who? Me? Kenneth R. Misner. John R. Doe. Then he asks to call a lawyer in Atlanta. 
He told him he needed to ask his lawyer if he should reveal his identity and what plea to make. His lawyer, Miller Farmer, told him to say nothing and they'd send a representative. Ted ended up calling one of his friends from Seattle as well. A public defender came the next day and was with him from 5 p.m. to 9.45. Uh, during this time period, he is noticeably distraught. He's crying, smoking cigarettes back to back to back. He calls Anne Rule on February 17th at 3.15 a.m. Now, she knew he had been arrested down there because news travels. And in fact, uh, she said in her book uh, that she realized, she was just like, dang, Ted was in Florida. And she was right. Which means she was sure that he had done the Chai Omega attack. Yeah. He told her he didn't know what to do and the police weren't mistreating him. And he and Anne was just like, don't you think it's just time to let all this out? So he's like, I'll tell you if you come see me. And she's like, I don't really have a lot of money. I'll see if I can get a ticket from Seattle to Florida. And he's like, the police will pay for your ticket. They want you to like, they want a positive ID for who I am. And gets a call from the assistant Florida state attorney saying if they can't get a confession in three days, they would send for her. They did not get a confession. What they got was a crazy ramble of confessions to other stuff. He talked about his escapes, how he made it to Florida, his likes and dislikes, skiing, racquetball. He talked about crashing college parties and stealing the kids' IDs and credit cards. When they asked about the white van, he got a little shifty. He told them he had been in prison in Utah from March to late October of 1976. He'd run from a murder charge in Colorado. Said he thought the FBI were overrated bastards. He admitted to being a voyeur and a peeping Tom, but said that Utah had no evidence against him because the bodies were found in pieces. He admitted that he had desires to harm women, but he never admitted to doing it. They even offered him a plea deal if he told them where Kimberly's body was so that her parents could get closure. <laughs> they eventually got tired of the cyclical conversations and Ted thinking he was the smartest guy in the room. Mm -hmm. He ended up spending the next five months in a Tallahassee jail for his preliminary trial. The other states with bodies would have to wait because Florida was like, we're going to do this first. In a very interesting move, the district attorneys said they did not want to talk to him until they had all the evidence they felt they needed to convict him. And on July 28, 1978, he was indicted for the murders of Margaret Bowman and Lisa Levy at the Chi Omega sorority house. Then, Lake City charged him with kidnapping and murder of Kimberly Leach on the 31st of July. Now, the hardest part was trying to find an impartial jury in northern Florida because Everybody connected this guy to him kidnapping and killing a kid. And of course, this is now major national news. So they moved the trial to Miami. And that trial takes place 1979 in July. This is the first nationally televised trial in the United States. Now, unlike Ted's first trials where he, you know, was silly and yelled and, you know, slammed books on the table... This one was much more straightforward. There was an obscene amount of evidence and a lot of witnesses. The bite marks on Lisa Levy were in the most incriminating. He tried to claim that they didn't match because uh, while they were in saline, they shrank. But the original photos of the bite marks were taken with a ruler. And those pics were taken well before it shrank. So no luck, bud. <laughs> July 24th. 
Jury deliberates for seven hours. They return with guilty on two counts, which is all counts of murder. Right. Uh, that was two counts of first-degree murder, three counts of attempted first-degree murder. One week later, he gets sentenced to death by electrocution. When he hears the sentence, he stands up and yells, tell the jury they were wrong. Now, I want to read you this sentencing statement from the ju- from the judge because it is the most contradictory bullshit. So his name is Judge Coart, just so y'all can know. <laughs> he says, the court finds that both of these killings were indeed heinous, atrocious, and cruel, and they were extremely wicked, shockingly evil, vi, and the product of a design to inflict a high degree of pain and utter indifference to human life. Then he hands down the death sentence. And he says, take care of yourself, young man. I say that to you sincerely. Take care of yourself. It is an utter tragedy for this court to see such a total waste of humanity. I think as I've experienced in this courtroom, you're a bright young man. You'd have made a good lawyer, and I would have loved to have you practice in front of me, but you went another way, partner. I don't feel any animosity towards you. I want you to know that. Take care of yourself. (laughs) That's what the judge who just sentenced him to death said. Over 250 reporters were there for the trial and the sentencing, and the entire country is just shocked. Like, how could you say something like that, showing such indifference to these victims? I included it because throughout all of my research, the majority of the people impressed with Ted Bundy were white men. He managed to pretend to be normal in social settings so that women would like him, like, at a party or something. Mm -hmm. But in his authentic self around women, he was off-putting to every woman who saw him on the street. He gave you a vibe that he was a creep. But two other white men, they saw... Hey, this guy, he fits right in. (laughs) Yeah, he's just like us. He's just like us. A big creep. (laughs) So shortly after he goes to trial in Lake City for the murder of Kimberly Leach, that trial gets moved to Orlando. (laughs) Leslie and Danny Parmenter testify, as do several other people who saw him standing outside the school. In another total and complete disregard for the legal system and his victims, uh, now, Carol Ann Boone had moved to Florida to be, near, to be near him during this time and also to testify in the other case as a character witness. Mm. He takes advantage of a really old law in Florida that says that if you make a marriage declaration in court in the presence of a judge, it becomes a legal marriage. So in the middle of his trial, he stops and he asks Carol Boone, do you want to marry me? And Carol's like, yes. Mm-hmm. And they are legally married during his trial. What the fuck? now carol gives birth to a child in 1982 which she has always insisted was the child of ted bundy's while the while he was on death row Mm -hmm. and the prison did not allow for conjugal visits there was a rumor that if you paid the guards enough money they'd leave you alone long enough to get something done (laughs) so it's possible it may or may not have happened got it I mean, she ref- the, the child's name was named Rose Bundy. I one, Later on, she changed all of their names. But regardless, he receives his third murder charge and is given the death penalty for a third time. Over the next six years, his legal team appeals the hell out of everything they possibly could. In July of 1984, he tries to break out of prison again 
But the guards in Florida were doing a little bit more frequent checks on him. Mm-hmm. And they discovered that he had hacksaw blades and that he had been slowly cutting the prison bars on his cell. What the hell? Now, during this time, he was interviewed and he was evaluated many times by a lot of professionals. There are a lot of misdiagnoses here. But as of right now, everyone points to antisocial personality disorder, which is generally what we put on anybody who we deem a psychopath. Mm. Personally, I think we should save the discussion of mental health for people like Richard Chase or even Jeffrey Dahmer, who had deep delusions and struggled with holding on to reality. Right. Ted was always aware of who he was and what he wanted to do. He actively indulged his fantasies from a very young age all the way into adulthood. The other aspect of all these interviews he did with the specialist was that he would gauge what the doctor or even the reporter wanted to hear and fill in the gaps, which is why there were so many different diagnoses. Same thing with all of his quotes that that people like to bring up about him. Like one time he admitted to being a serial killer, like towards the end, like he was just giving people whatever they wanted. Right. No, one thing was consistent. He never admitted responsibility for his murders. Like he said it, I did it. I cut her head off, but he blamed it on not knowing his dad. Um, oh, so he didn't his, he didn't say like, oh, no, I cut her head off because I'm a terrible person. Or it was just, uh, you know, I did this because of my dad and my mom and my grandparents and my abusive grandfather and society so and violent sh- television shows and porn. Shifting blame to everything else. Constantly till the end of his life. Um, interesting enough, they actually offered him a deal to take the death penalty off the table if he admitted to killing any of the women in Florida, he wouldn't do it. What the hell? He was issued a total of four death warrants over the next six years of the years of appeals. The final one was issued January 17, 1989 by Governor Bob Martinez. Uh, Martinez did something that was actually outside of the norm. He refused to have a clemency hearing, which is what you normally do. Uh, he was tired of Ted Bundy, and he was sending him the message that this is it, bud, you're out. Bundy, of course, does what everyone in his position in this does. He starts reaching out to every writer, person who asked him for comments. He starts telling all his dirty secrets, hoping that he could get new investigations open in Utah and Colorado and avoid his death sentence. That's why when I was first telling you the story about the missing women, Mm -hmm. I told you when he confessed. They were, these were all the week leading up to his execution. Ultimately, we will never know uh, how many women he killed, uh, if he had other dub sites. He's been linked to potentially a dozen other cases. When he was asked if it was only 36, he coyly responded, add one more digit. Not saying whether it was 37 or 136 or 360. Mm. Yet again, another attempt to stave off execution. Right. Wait, did he... uh, uh, He said he wanted to die, though, so why not just die? He wanted to die that night he got arrested. Apparently, he got some new energy after that. (laughs) Now, you remember Liz Klopfer, now Liz Kendall? She wrote a memoir after he was convicted um, that she now actually kind of regrets some of the things she said. 
She says she was in denial about who Ted really was, and it has been hard as hell for her to come to grips with the reality of Ted Bundy, the duality of a man who killed two women and then took her out to dinner, hmm. who treated her well but also tried to kill her. Um, in her updated memoirs more recently, she simply says, I'm grateful that my daughter and I survived him. Carol Boone, as I mentioned, had a child. Uh, she says she paid off the guards. She changed her name, though, eventually, and moved off the grid. She did divorce him just before his execution. She died in 2018 in a nursing home at 72 years old. Mm-hmm. On January 24th, 1989, Ted Bundy was executed by electric chair. His last words were to his attorney, Jim Coleman, and his minister, Fred Lawrence. It said, Jim and Fred, I'd like you to give my love to my family and friends. I actually want to, Matt, I want to read you something that Kathy Kleiner said about this entire process. She said, for over 10 years when he was incarcerated, they had stays of execution. It pissed me off. I said, where's Margaret's and Lisa's extensions? The night the execution was going to happen, the district attorney called at midnight and said, there's no more stays. This is going to happen right now. I got a call at about 6 or 6.30 a.m. that it was done. He was killed before they showed it on TV. I cried, but I wasn't crying for me. I was okay. It was for Margaret and for Lisa and for 30 other people, just to have peace for them, for a resolution for their families. Afterward, I composed myself. I dried my face and said, let's go to breakfast. I'm over it. Damn. One of the things that I want to make clear here and why I spent a lot of time in the detailing these crimes is at no point did Ted Bundy coerce or smile his way into convincing a woman to go with him. He relied on women's natural empathy. And when that didn't work, he just used brute force to kidnap them. History and the media have painstakingly gone gone out of their way to try and paint his victims as idiot schoolgirls swayed by a pretty smile when the only people that ever got to see that side of, of him were a few women in his personal life and other people in the justice system. Like I said earlier, one of Ted's original attorneys was quoted as saying, Ted seemed like a normal guy just like us. The white men in charge in courtrooms across the country were the ones who gave him a pass, even though everything about this man set women on edge when he was out prowling schools and parks. I say this a lot, and I keep saying it. Our justice system aids the men who commit these kinds of crimes by giving them passes for being so nice. Think on the fact that we didn't look at Bundy's crimes and make any connections at first because the cops in those districts listed every single girl as a runaway. Lazy police work and insensitivity to the victims allows killers to continue unbothered. Normally, I usually end things right there, you know, but I don't want to end talking about Ted Bundy. (laughs) I want the listeners to know about the things that the survivors have done with their lives. Um, Five women survived Ted Bundy. Karen Sparks, now Karen Sparks Epley, uh, didn't actually even use her name when Anne Rule wrote the book, The Stranger Beside Me. Uh, In more recent years, when she's participated in some of the documentaries, she has been, she has been open about who she is, but originally she didn't want to be connected to the man who raped her in any way. Karen sustained a traumatic brain injury, lost 50% of her hearing, 40% of her vision, has constant ringing in her ears and seizures. Just want to lay that out there. That's the man that some of you who are listening adore. He broke off a piece of her bed, beat her with it, and then raped her with that piece of wood. 
There's been a lot of misinformation about Karen because she hasn't always been willing to give of herself for the Ted Bundy media machine. Mm -hmm. But she did finish college. She went on to become an accountant. She had a family uh, and lived happily and quietly. Like I said, she was in the documentary Surviving Ted Bundy recently. And that was really one of the first big pushes where she explained what happened to her. Carol Durant was only went to a couple of his court dates outside of her own. She got a telecommunications degree. She got married. She kept a quiet life until her son, who was 28 at the time, encouraged her to participate in the Netflix series, The Ted Bundy Teams. Um, after that, she began posting on a page that she keeps on Facebook where she posts about Ted's crimes, but also other cases in the USA. She has no issue talking about her experience, but she says it is really hard for her to talk about the other victims. Hmm. Karen Chandler participates in documentaries and things. She's been happily married for 40 years, enjoys a life of quiet with her kids and grandkids. Um, one of my favorite quotes from her is, I was a victim until I walked out of the hospital. I was a survivor until he was executed. We got to come up with something after that. He's not a part of me anymore. Uh, both Karen and Kathy had a pretty hard recovery. Uh, like I said, I mentioned their um, their uh, injuries before. Right. Uh, Kathy struggled a lot. Uh, she actually kind of forced herself to take a job as a cashier at a lumber yard to get over her fear of men she didn't know. She did quit school. Uh, her parents were like, you need someone to take care of you. Marry this guy now. Uh, that didn't fix any of the healing that needed to go on there. Uh, instead, they got divorced. She moved to New Orleans. She married a theater kid from high school who she had been part of theater with. Uh, Kathy has virtually no feeling on the right side of her face from her attack. She reads a lot about Bundy, and she has no issue with him being discussed as long as people are willing to discuss his victims. She's probably the most public about her experiences in her life, and like I said, I'm invested. I want to read the memoir. It's mm. probably going to be a year or two before it comes out, but I'm interested. Yeah, can't wait to uh, read it. Cheryl Thomas was his last survivor. She was in a coma after her attack. She testified him at, against him at his trial in 1979. Uh, after she came out of her coma, she asked a neurologist if she would ever dance again. And the, the doctor pretty much said to her, that's up to you. Um, she had to learn everything all over again. Because uh, before she knew how to dance based on, you know, the equilibrium she had then. So now that her equilibrium is off, she has to learn movement again. But she absolutely did do it. She went back and got her bachelor's and then she got her master's from Gallaudet University in Texas in dance. She currently works with people who are hearing impaired who also want to dance. Hey. I think that's pretty cool. Nice, yeah. Yeah, those are the five who survived. <sighs> love to see it. I love. I, I I like hearing that. You know, at least some people survive, and they are trying to live their lives as best as they can. <sighs> I mean, it's all you can do in that situation, but it's it's still in, incredibly frustrating. And maddening to me. Yeah, like this whole, this whole. Oh my god, 
like I said earlier, like I'm just being quiet because I'm like I'm just listening and like I'm just like I don't I don't know how to react to like most of the things I'm hearing <laughs> right now. It's a lot. Absolutely, it, it's a lot. It, it was a lot. Like I I like almost thinking like, oh my god, what the hell is going on? <laughs> oh man. But you did a great job. You did a great job, as always. <laughs> yeah, actually, here's the tweet. It says, um, it was uh, from about a couple, from, yeah, January 15th. Um, she says, on this day, 44 years ago, I was attacked by serial killer Ted Bundy. I survived, but two of my sorority sisters did not. Today, I am announcing that I have accepted an offer with the Chicago Review Press for my memoir, A Light in the Dark, Surviving More Than Ted Bundy. I saved it in my phone. Nice. Like I said, she had like a, a crazy life before that. I mean, she'd already overcome so much before college. Right, yeah. So then to have to do that too, you know. Yeah. It's wild. <clears throat> That's all I got for you. All right. Alright. Well, like I said, great job. Once again. <laughs> <laughs> now, is this going to be a happy story or is this going to be a sad story? Are we just having a sad day over here? No, we're not sad boys today. Okay. Okay. You're supposed to be my paranormal palate cleanser. I'm supposed to be your, your, pe- your peppy, your peppy pep paranormal guy. Oh, God. Okay. Tell me about funny ghosts or something. I got something <laughs> that that'll make you probably feel a little better. Okay. So before, well, no, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna read this, okay? All right. So you wake up one morning, greet the day, get yourself ready, and then go to make you know go wake up your kid. They're usually cranking in the morning, like 100 percent of the time. You know they get it from <laughs> you. Um, are you talking about yourself? Not right now. <laughs> okay, just check that. Uh, today, though, today is different. You wake them up, and they wake up with, like, a sunny disposition. All smiles. Good morning, Daddy, is what they say. Like, all nice and bright and shiny, just all smiles. And this is weird. Like, you stumble over your good morning. Like, you greet them back, or you say good morning back to them. But you're like, a uh, good Good morning. <laughs> you like question it, and they just hop out of bed, almost like they're floating. Um, you look at them suspicious, like that's when you notice it uh, as they're like passing you by. Um, have your ears always been that pointed? You can't put your finger on it, but those ears—something hey! about them, something about them—sends shivers up your spine. <laughs> This isn't my kid, you think. And as soon as the thought crosses your mind, your kid turns around and gives you a knowing smirk, as if they had just heard your thoughts. What am I talking about today? Faye! I am talking about a type of Faye, yeah. I forget, these are the ones that people wanted to leave in the wilderness, right? Uh, I am talking about changelings today. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah. But, yeah, like, I don't know, something, like, this is how I always, like, how I always pick my subjects, like, something happens or something, like, crosses my path, and I'm like, 
yo, that would be awesome to talk about. So yeah, I was thinking, I was talking about fairies, like, I don't know, I was thinking about fairies the other day, and I was like, all right, let me look up some fairy stuff, and then I was like, oh, changelings, I can look up changelings, and how, oh, how they, like, replace children all the time. And, yeah. <laughs> And and yeah, it's it's normal. Well, this is one of those interesting things. Well, never mind. You're probably gonna talk about this later. I'm not gonna say anything. What? No, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. You're probably. Um, some of my friends who are um, autistic mm-hmm. believe that the changeling lore um has to do with kids who might have had autism. I was going to talk about the that idea yes. that your you know, kids <laughs> changed right in front of you. Yeah, uh, is a really common, you know. That is thing. one of the thoughts. Yes, um, but yeah, like you, like you said, I am going to get into that later. <laughs> well, so it's just it's it's something that like we've discussed. Mm-hmm. <sighs> okay. But let's. I haven't looked too much into it past that, but. Well, let's get into the lore, and then we can get into the real stuff. So, children are usually replaced by, like you said, fairies or fae people, um, elves, or even trolls um, in European folklore. Um, from what I've read, like for various reasons, actually, like. They, they, like, they're replaced for various reasons, for some reason. I don't know. But I'm gonna, I'm like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you some of the reasons that I found why a child would be replaced by these fae. So, some lore says that human milk is needed for fairy children to grow and, like, live off of. So they swap out the babies that are being nursed by, you know, their moms um, with these fairy babies so they can, like, live. Okay. Um, They can also be replaced by fairies or trolls or whatever um, because they just love humans and they want a human child. They like they live their whole life and like you know what I've been watching these humans like over the hill and you know what I want one of those where do I get one and <laughs> now that right. now that I say it, it's kind of like someone trying to pick out like a a pet you know what I mean <laughs> or a dog and they're just like it's like like that thing is so cute that little thing that walks on two legs it's so adorable where can I find one oh god oh yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, they just they just go get like a, a human child and they just eat their the newborns over to the humans. <laughs> um and they may just want like a human servant. Like on the Fae, they just don't they're like, you know what? I need a butler or a maid. And you know you know where I can find one? Right over there in that human village, because they look like they can, they, they're hard workers, and they could probably clean up my, what, wherever fairies live, I don't know, but they can clean up my, my, my house <laughs> really well, um, so, like, they want someone they can boss around, basically, um, 
with her, and they can talk behind her backs. And I'm like, oh, don't mind Samantha. She's human, so it takes her a while to pick things up. Isn't that right, Samantha? Yes, so inferior. Yes, yes, you are. Oh my god, uh, I wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you did. <laughs> uh, actually, in Scan in Scandinavia, um, trolls would replace their children with human children, so that uh, the troll children could live a better life. Because you know people don't like trolls, so they're like. Well, this this human child is going to be okay, even if I take it. So it's fine. But my child, like, I don't know what's going to happen to them. They may be hunted down or something. So I have to, like, replace. I want to replace my child. and Give them a, the life I could never have. So I'm going to replace them. Um, I Not only did I learn that by reading that, but I also learned it by watching a cartoon on Netflix. Um, it's called Hilda. Have you seen it? Mm-mm. Hilda, it's really, it's pretty great, actually. Um, I watch it for the Lord. I swear I watch it just for the Lord. That's it. <laughs> anyway, so, kids aren't the only people, or humans, uh, taken. Adults can be taken, too, and replaced. Um, but not by a fairy, just by, like, an object that... Like um, I guess a piece of, like a a piece of a log, I saw is what like some humans are replaced with because the log would just lay there. So what happens is that they would just turn this log into like a replica of the person, and it would just be laying in their bed. And okay. obviously, obviously, there would be no pulse coming from this person. So there, people would just like, oh my god, they died in their sleep. Oh no, um. But in reality, this person was just taken by like fairies or trolls because they're different. There are like two different reasons what I read is that for one, they would take like um a new like a new mother, and for the same reason before like for, for the, the the human milk. So uh. yes, so they would take the moms instead of just the children. And they would just have this mom <laughs> in this this fae village, just nursing all the fae babies. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Okay, aw. no, it's not good. Still kidnapped. Bad, bad, <laughs> bad, bad, bad. Oh God. Or they would take um, I guess, a young adult, so they could marry them off into the fairy family for some reason. So they can have like human fae babies. I don't. I didn't. I don't see why they would do that. But anyway. So as as the lore of the kids and adults being replaced by uh, fae folk spread, you know the increase in child abuse and uh, infant. Infant aside, basically like people that killed their, their babies, um, and just like torture or murder was you know on the rise. Weird, right? Like why would that why would that be on the rise? Well, in certain parts of the world, like uh, Germany, 
um, there are a few ways to find out if your child is actually a changeling. Um, you could hit them, uh, whip them, or, you know, attempt to burn them in the oven. Just imagine <laughs> one day, like, just imagine like one day your partner, they're like, they, they think you're acting weird, right? And then it's time to go in the oven. Like, it's time to, like, it's, like, it's time for you to get burned. It's time, oh, God. Um, now, there, like, there, like, there are, like, a lot of other places that do this, too, but, well, did this, or, I, I should say, did this, but, like, in, in Ireland, if you put a changeling in a fire, it would cause them to jump up. Apparently, so you put them in their fire. I guess where you where you you know your chimney is at. What is this? A fireplace? Oh, <laughs> I could not find out. I could not figure out the word for that. Your fireplace. You put a like your child in the fireplace, and if it was a changeling, it would jump out of the chimney and run off into like run to their fairy home, and then your child would come like your child would come back because that's a thing um so yeah like a lot of a lot of kids a lot of child abuse was happening um a lot of kids were either being killed or you know burned alive so they were taken yeah totally (laughs) yeah they were definitely taken um okay so there are different (laughs) there are of course non-violent ways to find out if you're like you're in the presence of a changeling um okay (laughs) so uh in irish lore you can you can see that the child isn't so i guess this is just an ireland that you can see that you're like the the kid isn't growing and like they're not growing at like a normal rate like they should be growing um so they're just like small still um, they may also have, I don't know, like a beard. <laughs> like, <laughs> I read that, I was like, so you're just going to have like this little baby in your crib, in, in the crib, and it's just going to be like a bearded looking old dude. Um, now also, uh, some children were replaced by elderly fairies. This is why they would have like beards and stuff like that. Um, and the reason why is so, like, the elderly fairy could be, like, coddled, like, a baby, and it's, like, his last days before it died. Okay. So, like, it, it it would get, like, that one chance of, like, reliving its childhood as being, like, pampered and stuff like that. Man, fairy lore is weird. <laughs> this is all weird. It's very... So far, nothing is not weird, Brian. <laughs> but it's... <laughs> This is all weird. It's oh my god! It's yes. It's um. It's it's so. I can tell one of my D and D people to listen to this because um, in our game, she uh, has a small fae with her, Mm -hmm. and she uses the phrase constantly: "Always trust a fae." And Uh, we all cackle because that is absolutely what you should not do. Uh, at any time, I know in who the you're talking about. Humanity. I know who you're talking about. <laughs> and so we're gonna, we're gonna let. I'm gonna 
tell her to listen to this. Oh my god. Yeah, yes. should, should we listen? <laughs> should, should we listen to the Faye now? Should we trust the Faye? Kind of creeptastic. <laughs> oh my god. Murdering, not murdering, kidnapping pregnant women. Yes. Um. So I'm trying to find it, but there's another way you can find out how the uh, if they're if they are a Faye or not, like they're change or if they're changeling, and that's mm-hmm. like I think it's. It says boiling eggshells, boiling eggshells, and making them drink that like the, the whatever the the broth or whatever of the eggshells would cause them to like speak the truth. Okay. And then they would reveal their their actual age. So here's the situation. <laughs> okay. No one ever reviews it, like ever reveals anything because nothing ever happens. This is true. <laughs> oh, goodness gracious! Great balls of fire. Oh. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Uh, so those are some ways to find out if you know your, your your child is actually. You know, you know. It's funny because I'm not going to lie. Some days, you know, I look at my kids and I'm like, "You're acting strange today. What's wrong with you?" Like who are you? Like you ever have you ever had like when your like your parents just say like who are you today? You're acting very different. <laughs> when you're just like um, in a, in a happy mood, you're like. <sighs> yeah. So people routinely just you know ask, "Why are you like this?" <laughs> Obviously, people listening only know me at like the teacher aspect of my identity like i am teaching you the thing teach 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 um mm-hmm. i'm a total mess <laughs> i just be saying stuff off the wall and then with me what you get is what you hear is what you get all the time well this is the combination here oh god you are painfully awkward and <laughs> I am aggressively extroverted. This is true. <laughs> this is just who we are. This is true. <laughs> um so yeah, you're just you're you're introverted and quiet and but you are very funny. You there's lots of funny things when we played in that one D and D team together. This is true. With I, your southern accent. I, I can be funny sometimes. Oh, you miss... Oh, wait, no, wait, no, wait, no. <laughs> I was going to say... Oh, you from miss, the game on Saturday? Yeah, you missed... Did they tell you about it on, like, the Saturday? No, no. Okay. You tell me afterward. <laughs> I will, I will. Oh, it was funny. Anyway, um, so... So children... So this is, like, getting into the actual history stuff now, okay? So children identified as changelings by the superstitious um were often like i said abused or murdered um sometimes in the belief that changelings could be forced to admit their true natures by beatings and stuff like that which is yeah. i mean i'm sure with the beatings and the fire and stuff people were like yep you betcha yeah. i'm a changeling i'm 57 years old please stop hitting me <laughs> Oh, I can imagine I mean, that's like, okay, and so this is totally off topic, but like, screw it. 
politics aside, like that's one of the reasons why I think that like Guantanamo Bay like doesn't work because people are just gonna lie because they're tired of being beaten. Yeah, yeah. Like I don't know how you get people to you know tell the truth in these situations, but I sure tell you if you cause me any pain, ap- you know what? You're right. Yep, totally, absolutely. Yeah, I will cave. Am I a witch? Yup, you betcha. The witchiest witch you ever met. <laughs> I be hanging out in them woods every night. Oh my you God. want me to name other witches? Absolutely. Oh, that's that's how they work. I would have been terrible at the witch trials because the first time somebody whipped me, I'm telling everybody's business. Like you got that's all you got. Give me something else, please. Nope. I'd be like, listen, Goody Proctor was out there in them woods, butt ass naked, <laughs> like, dancing with the devil. <laughs> Dancing with the devil. I was there too. We were there with Samantha and Mary. We'd be hanging out in the woods every night. I just start lying. Oh my god. So I don't think pain is an effective way to get people to tell the truth. At least not for me. No. So as regards to beating children to get them to admit that they're 500 years old. <laughs> <laughs> like that, 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 me as a 5 year old? Yes I did it. Yeah, okay, as a five-year-old, yeah, I'd probably... Uh, <laughs> I would admit immediately. But as you get older, you get more stubborn. I'm like, fuck you. Mm-mm, I do not like pain. <laughs> okay. Not my kink. Sorry. <laughs> First, you hurt me, I'm done. Oh my god. I give up. Only diff- Only thing would be is if I needed to protect somebody else. Mm-hmm. For other people, I will extend myself in ways <laughs> that nope. don't make any sense but nope. for myself i'm like hey you know what i guess we're just gonna die <laughs> oh goodness. but if i need to protect like a kid yeah i'll fight mm-hmm. oh god but yeah okay so did you know that the word oaf is derived from the historic English word for a changeling. Oh, really? It's yeah. Instead of uh, instead of it being spelled O A F, it was spelled A U F. Um, and it was supposed to be like short for like Elvin or Alvin. Mm-hmm. So, people who were called an, who were called an oaf in the back in in the in God back in the day. <laughs> were thought to have been changelings. Um, if I think of an oaf, I think of an ogre, though, like a big guy. See, that's what that's what it means now, like a uh, clumsy or like a, I guess, a, a not so smart person, like a big oaf. But yeah, yeah, think of a giant. Yeah, so and falling over. <laughs> So, you mentioned earlier about the autism. Mm -hmm. So, there are different, there are other, um, I guess, medical tales that could, like, explain why people's other children were changelings, or Mm -hmm. medical um, conditions that made people think that they were changelings, because they, like you said, they would change before their very eyes into, like, a different person. I mean, it's what it's what some parents who have experienced their child, um, in the early like, 
It's so, it's such a rough, I mean, I also experienced this with my niece, um, who has seizures. She was total chill baby. And then she started having seizures and then she was never the same ever again. Mm -hmm. Um, it was like night and day. And of course they believe that the seizures altered her, her brain to such an extent they couldn't stop them. Um, so I totally understand what people are saying, like, in that regard. Yeah. Like, like these could be like, like you said, seizures, autism, Down syndrome. It was cyst, uh, cystic fibrosis, Hunter syndrome, like you name it, cerebral palsy, like all all those. They could have, like, people read stories about changelings back then. It was just like, wait a second, this sounds like, you know, such as us that's going on today, you know. And I saw somebody explain, like, people were like, everybody's getting autism now. And someone really explained it in a unique way to me that made me, like, do it, just a, a stop and pause, mm -hmm. which was, like, way, way back before there was any sort of modernization everywhere. It was was pretty common that somebody might like have a job where they churn butter which if you've ever been to like one of those old timey cities and you have churned your own butter it is a fate worse than death <laughs> it is monotonous and you just sit there and you just do the same motion over and over and over again thank god for modern machinery yes. but for someone who might be autistic that kind of repetitive motion is soothing. And so Tom, who just tr makes butter and hangs out in his house, like there's no external stimulus. There's no loud sounds. There aren't cards going by. There's not people setting off firecrackers at the break of crack of dawn or as soon as it gets nighttime, because that's what people do during COVID. Mm. And so like <laughs> the world was less hostile potentially to people who were autistic before we be, you know, before modernization and, and the steam, it, like industrialization and stuff. And so now we live in a world that is hostile towards not just people who are autistic, but people with disabilities in general. Absolutely. Uh, and we like to talk about how like, oh, in the old days, they took a baby who had a deformity and put them in the woods. Yeah, for but, exposure. Like, but, I mean, I feel like just because two of my roommates have disabilities and I've been watching a lot of content online um, from people with disabilities explaining their lives, uh, people explaining how, like, COVID has essentially given them a long-term disability. Mm -hmm. And, like, I don't know about other countries, but in America, we are actively hostile towards people who need any help. And so, like... Yeah, maybe in the past, like, it might have been confusing for an otherwise bubbly child to suddenly become very quiet and and fixate on, you know, one thing. But at least they could have had a life back then. This is true. Like, it, it would seem boring to us today, to me, someone with ADHD who never stops moving or working or writing. But that kid, you know in the 1400s that it might have been actually a great time for him to live mm -hmm. 
Sure, they thought he was weird, but he's just a little off. It's he okay. was able to have a job, yeah. you know, provide for a family. He was just a little quiet. You know what I mean? So that's another interesting factor too. But of course, autism presents itself in a million different ways. It's a major spectrum. This is um, very true. Some people, it would have been terrifying for. You know, I mean, I remember my first experience with a child with autism. I was like 18 years old. I was working at a summer camp. Um, and this kid definitely shouldn't have been in our program. And it was right before the summer started. So I was there kind of in that in-between period when school ends and summer camp starts. Mm -hmm. And he was about five or six years old. And he kind of just attached himself to me. And I was the person he wanted to be around. To the point where if I went on my lunch break, he would just, like, scream. Oh, damn. So I started, like, eating lunch in the room with him. And, like, his other teacher was just like, he's been like this all year, and you're the only person that he wants to be near and talk to. Oh. Eventually, his mom was able to get him tested and moved into another program. But, like, I just, I feel so incredibly bad for the kids who aren't diagnosed or the people who don't learn about this stuff until they're in their adulthood. Right. And they felt like... Something was wrong with them, you know? Mm -hmm. And really, it's just a different way of filtering the world. Absolutely. Okay. So I have. Sorry. No, you're good. But yeah. So, is there another thing other than like a mental difference that people could have thought? The changing thing was I, like was this just I, I guess it would also be like physical like changes as well you know okay I mean? that would just be like okay why is my child like have like I don't know like a club foot now you know what I mean mm. or stuff like that um okay so there's one last thing I want to talk about though mm -hmm. and so changeling behavior actually happens in nature oh cool so especially with birds now have you heard of like i don't know like a, a cowbird or like cuckoo uh, cuck uh, can i say that word How do you spell it? Cuckoo, cuckoos i think it's a cuckoo i'm gonna say cuckoo it cuckoos cuckoos yeah cuckoo birds. oh i was gonna say cuckoo but um so like cowbirds and cuckoos so what they this is like it's like it's it's an interesting thing if you like nature okay so I like birds. okay so you're probably not gonna like birds after this so what these birds do these cuckoos or these cowbirds they go and lay their eggs into another bird's nest and, and their egg either hatches faster or that the bird that they lay is bigger than the other birds that hatch um so this like i'm gonna say cowbird so this cowbird hatchling it eats a lot and it it like takes over the whole nest that this one this bird parent doesn't even know that this this bird isn't even theirs <clears throat> They just know that they sat on this egg and that it hatched. So obviously, it's my bird. It's it's my baby. So, are these the ones that knock the other babies out of the nest? Yes, or? it is. Yes, it is. Okay. Yes, yeah, that's yeah. exactly what I they do. I've heard of them. Sometimes I did, couldn't remember their names, but yeah, sometimes they they knock the other babies out of the nest. Sometimes they just eat all the food. But 
baby still dies. <laughs> baby, like the other babies just are like malnourished and everything. And this one bird just takes everything and goes goes off and lives their their best bird life when these other birds are just I mean this this happens a lot in nature. I mean yep. we've talked about off camera, I mean we've talked about the fungus that causes the um the ants? The ants, yeah, and the other animals and then there's like a wasp that uh Oh, that they laid their babies into, like, somebody's head or something. And then, and then once, it eats once, them. Yeah, they eat them from the inside out. It's, nature is, nature, damn, what is it? Uh, yeah. What is it for the family guy? Damn, nature, you scary. <laughs> I mean, uh, that's really it. Like, uh, this is this is an aspect of nature that's pretty intense. Yeah, but that's, like, this is, that's, like, a real-life changeling thing. Is like, you have this one I baby. That's true. Yeah. You have this one baby that's like sitting in your nest that you thought was yours, but really not yours. It's some other person. They just planted their <laughs> their egg into your nest, uh, and they fucked up your whole life. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but that's what I got for changelings today. Uh, hopefully, this was the brighter side of the podcast. We, you know, I know I involved some children being burned alive and you know whipped and beaten but other than that you know it's <laughs> <laughs> i'm trying <laughs> yeah totally it's totally not any darker than what you just talked about right intriguing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. oh but uh thank you guys for listening this week as always. Absolutely. And also, thank you so much for mm-hmm. supporting us on everything. Our Patreon supporters, we love you so much. Absolutely. And Patreon's still there. You still get your bonus episode. Thank you for watching, listening, streaming with me on multiple platforms. Yes. I appreciate it. And yeah. Yeah, I know whenever I stream, like, Whenever I stream, it's rare, but whenever I do, people do hop in there. Like, people Yay. from the community. And they're like, oh, hey, it's Brian. This is like, oh, my God, people know my name. <laughs> oh, bud. You're going to really struggle, huh? Yeah, I'm struggling already. <laughs> what happens when I get a TV show? Don't talk about me on there. <laughs> don't no, I won't talk about you, but people are going to look for stuff I'm in and find you. Oh, no. Who's this weird guy? <laughs> oh, God. Okay, anyway. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Um, bye. <laughs> Have a good night. Good night.